Hello and welcome to the Katie Halper Show. Really excited about this week's episode. We have two great guests. One is Samelis Lopez, who is running for Congress in Bronx's 15th district. She is a housing advocate. She's formerly homeless, and she is the real progressive in this race. And she talks about her biography, why she got into politics, what moved her to enter the race, and what makes her different from the other candidates. You'll definitely want to vote for her if you live in the Bronx in the 15th district, and the elections are June 23rd. Also, you can follow her on Twitter at Samelis Lopez. That's S-A-M-E-L-Y-S-L-O-P-E-Z. Then I speak to Asad Hader who is the author of Mistaken Identities, Race and Class in the Age of Trump. He's also the founding editor of Viewpoint Magazine, and you can find him on Twitter at Generality III. Stand by for more episodes that are coming down the pike, which include an interview with Malika Jabali, Margaret Kimberly, Anya Parampil, Johanna Fernandez, Rania Kalik, Leslie Lee, Eugene Perrier, Shahid Buttar. All of those are coming as either main episodes or Patreon-only episodes. Huge news, guys. Huge breaking news. You know, listeners, you've probably heard of the Katie Halper Show bump. Well, it has stricken again. It has struck again. It has stricken again. It struck again. Guess who got endorsed by Amo Bernie? After I record the interview, but before the time of my recording this intro, obviously. Samelis Lopez. Coincidence? I think not. You tell me. You be the judge. Uh, okay. Congrats again to Samelis. Welcome. Thank you so much for having me. Buenas noches. Buenas. You have a really great campaign video. I thought I would give viewers and listeners the chance to get to know you. Oh, absolutely. If you want to show it, definitely. It's called Red Lines, and it's a little bit yeah. about me, my personal story, and the history of the South Bronx that I wanted to use a campaign to highlight. Great. Years ago, the banks drew a red line around the South Bronx because immigrants and black and Latino families lived here. The money stopped, the people got poor, and the landlords burned them out of their homes for the insurance money. But to a 10-year-old girl who spent three years with her mom and baby brother in a Brooklyn homeless shelter, our first real home inside that Bronx red line was beautiful. Boogie Down, the birthplace of hip hop, all that magic and all these people got redlined in. We were an island of salsa music, block parties, y la revolución. From the young lords to the people who rebuilt their blocks, brick by brick, building by building. Our people stayed to fight, survival, resilience, creativity. That's what the South Bronx is. But we've been sold out by the political establishment and the greedy developers who fund them. And our own community leaders are complicit, taking their money and helping them steal our homes. Housing is a universal human right. But because of racist housing practices like redlining, America needs a homes guarantee. But that's not enough. We need Medicare for all and a Green New Deal. I've spent my life fighting for this community. Working people, single parents, the elderly, the poor, people who ride the bus and work two jobs. They're the most powerful people I know. 
I'd be the only member of Congress to have grown up homeless in New York City. I remember that 10-year-old girl, humiliated that she lives in a shelter, who promised herself that she'd do anything to keep other families from feeling that shame, who found her first home in the South Bronx and became the daughter of a revolution. I'm Samelis Lopez, and I'm running for Congress because the South Bronx saved my life, and there's nothing I won't do to save my home. Great. So, um, that's a great video. Um, tell us how you got, when you first thought of becoming involved in politics, how old you were. Well, I don't know that I've ever like have intentionally said that I'm gonna be involved in politics. It was more of a matter of being involved in my community, making a difference, organizing. And as you saw from my personal story that we described in the campaign video, everything has been linked to my personal lived experiences. And that has been the motivation and inspiration for me to be involved in the community and to be involved in social justice, transformative grassroots organizing, and really taking leadership from directly impacted people, um, from my mom, who was a domestic violence survivor, who worked in sweatshops to make ends meet, um, and things like that, uh, to basically like make a change and looking at directly impacted people like my mom, like many of the people here in my community in this congressional district, so that we can translate that suffering into collective action through the electoral process. And I guess I started becoming involved in politics or at least working for an elected official when I graduated college. And I worked for Congressman Jose Serrano, who's currently retiring right now. And as you may already know, he's one of the most left-leaning members of all of Congress. And he's actually the co-founder of the Medical for All Caucus. And he has very progressive views when it comes to foreign policy and things like that. So I learned a lot about valuable lessons working for him in his office. And one of the things that I really admired about him is the fact that he always centered environmental justice and he always listened to the movement space. That's something that I always got um, you know, when I was working in his office. So then moving on from there, I ended up uh, leaving his office because I would help a lot of people get uh, grants to prevent themselves from being evicted through the welfare office. And then the same people six months, seven months down the road would come back to the office to get more help. And I just felt like, well, I wanna be a part of the creative process of building housing. I wanna be a part of the solution. So then I left there and then I ended up getting a master's in urban planning with a focus in community housing development. So I can learn about affordable housing finance and the development process. And for the past decade of my life, after I graduated, I have been in the affordable housing field, building housing for people who were once in the situation that my family and I were once in, living in the shelters, living in the streets, because I wanted to, to build housing. I felt like that was something tangible that I can do to give people housing. Because right now, not having access to housing is a public health crisis. Like people need access to soap and running water right now because of what's happening with the coronavirus. So that's one of the reasons that when I decided to enter this race, which is a long process for me as well, because I almost didn't enter this race. People ask me in the community and the progressive space to really consider it because I've been fighting alongside the trenches um, in the grassroots movement space here. Um, that's why the most important thing that I'm fighting for in this platform is a homes guarantee, is housing as a universal human right in America. Because we're the richest country in the world and there should be no homelessness. No child should have experienced what I went through when I was growing up in New York City. And there's countless of children going through that situation as well. There's a homelessness crisis and most of the people that are being impacted are children. 
So we need to build housing and the Homes Guarantee platform is all about decommodifying housing, not building housing for profit, targeting speculative land practices that artificially increase the cost of rent um, and coming up with a national tenant bill of rights so that tenants can have more of a sense of ownership over housing decisions that are made. So it's a really beautiful platform and it was actually conceived by directly impacted people all over the country that came together to envision a bold housing policy platform that they could live with. Um, so I'm really happy to be running as a Homes Guarantee candidate. And that's definitely the most important issue that resonates with people here in the congressional district, just because this is the poorest urban congressional district in the entire country. And there is a huge, uh, displacement crisis and gentrification crisis because of our proximity to Manhattan and luxury real estate developers wanting to come in and kick our communities out for profit. So we really need a working class uh, champion who's rooted in these struggles to fight in Congress and say, you know, the buck stops here with me. And, you know, one of the things that I've done that's different from the other corporate Democrats that are running is that I've rejected real estate developer funding, corporate fact funding, because I want to stay in line with the community. And a way of guaranteeing that is by making sure that I don't owe high dollar donors in big places anything. And, you know, that's basically like, you know, what we're doing in our race that's different than anybody else who's running. We're running a race and fundraising a race that reflects the values of the community and respects our community ancestors and the people that you saw in that video that fought to stay in this community and made this community what it is today beyond the fires that you all saw in the videos that were happening in the 70s and the 80s. So this is a testament to that movement space, the elder movement leaders of the past, the young lords as well that you saw referenced in the video as well. And is really a testament to the beauty and the resiliency of this community that I absolutely love. I mean, you can hear the music in the background right now. I don't have no control over that, I'm sorry. There's some bachata playing, some merengue, it's beautiful, but that these are the sounds of my community and you all should come, you know, and uh, and visit sometime when this epidemic is over. How has the police brutality, which was has been there obviously for so long, but how has the kind of recent focus on it, you know, obviously the country is like in protests um, in a way that we haven't seen before, at least during my lifetime. Mm -hmm. and, how much did you expect that? How much is this an issue you are already very concerned with? Do you have any predictions about what will happen? Any thoughts about what needs to happen? Yeah, so definitely I have been participating in protests that have been happening here in the Bronx. I participated in about three or four of them. And they've been amazing displays of beauty and solidarity. And, uh, you know, also anger. People are really angry that justice still is not the case in as it relates to criminal justice in this country. And understanding that there's a lot of racism still, you know, that we need to work through. We need to continue to have those difficult conversations. We need to defund the police departments across the country. We need to demilitarize police departments as well and use those savings to invest in reparations for the black community, uh, for social services, as it relates to housing, as it relates to simple things like accessing food right now. People are hungry in, in my district um, and all over the country because of the lack of jobs through the coronavirus epidemic. Um, and healthcare, you know, we need to organize our uh, financial system in a way that makes sure that workers are getting their fair share. Because right now, people are not getting their fair share right now. So that's why we need to defund things that aren't working, right? And it's interesting because 
I've seen in social media, people are like, well, why is it that defunding the police is such a, is seen as such a radical stance when we've been defunding education for years and years? So I think it's time to basically like do a deep dive in terms of what's working, not working. And what's not working is the militarization that exists in the law enforcement community. We need to put that to, to a standstill. And we need to um, make sure that we have consent decrees all over the country that make sure that we have federal oversight, especially as it relates to cops that already have a history of abuses and complaints from the community. We need to have more community oversight um, in terms of the law enforcement uh, process and the civilian complaint review boards, like that needs to be implemented. So these are the demands that the criminal justice movement space has been fighting for for generations. In light of what happened to Eric Garner, in light of what happened to George Floyd that keeps happening, there's a lot of unresolved anger in the community and that's why people are protesting. And in some cases, that's why people are rioting because they're feeling unheard and unseen. And as Dr. Martin Luther King said, riots are the language of the unheard. And then what we've seen in New York City specifically um, is that the mayor for the past few days has instituted this curfew at 8 p.m. And a lot of people feel like that has had the intended effect of criminalizing the protests. And you know that's definitely not like where we need to go. I mean, I don't know if you've ever read 1984, George Orwell's yeah. book. And it kind of feels like we're in that space. You know, For the past like couple weeks, I feel like I'm living in a police state. So that, that's the state of New York City right now. Yeah. Um, and it's incredible that supposedly the bluest, one of the bluest cities and, and bluest states in the country um, is on the verge of becoming a police state. And yeah. hey, the Scorpius has also uh, been something that has been repealed. So now you can walk on the street and you know, like if you miss your curfew, you can just be detained with no explanation. That's a violation of constitutional rights. So I, you know, I don't know where we're heading towards, but you know, because of the organizing that's been happening and frontline activists putting their lives on the line to fight for dignity in terms of the criminal justice uh, community, um, you know, people from the Black Lives Matter movement, beyond the Black Lives Matter movement, standing in solidarity, uh, black and brown people like standing in solidarity, marching um, in the streets. Um, you know, has been incredible. And it's really that movement space that's going to bring about the changes that we need in this country. But we also have to meet the political moment and make sure that we're creating the right political conditions for the movement space to, you know, uh, you know be heard and seen so that it can be, because that's an effective marriage. If you could find grassroots, like working class candidates that can amplify and advocate for the demands of the movement space, um, you know, in the halls of Washington and other places. So you can have like inside and outside pressure coming together to create change. So I'm really yeah. hopeful at what I'm seeing. There's a lot of young people um, that are participating and, you know, I've been to those protests and it's just amazing, you know, what I've seen. And it just gives me courage and hope um, about the future of this country. How did you personally um, politically evolve? Uh, how do you identify politically and you mentioned the Young Lords. Um, I want to know if you come from a family that was political and politicized or not. No. Not at all. I mean, my mom to this day, she doesn't speak English. Um, and my first language is actually Spanish. Yeah. Um, so as you know, a child of an ignorant woman, 
I had to translate everything for her. You know, we warmed welfare for a time when she had my brother because she had to stop working at the sweatshop. So there were a lot of, you know, issues um, and economic instability that we faced together as a family. And as a five-year-old, like six, seven-year-old, like I would be tasked with translating everything for her that was going on. You know, and one of the first things that I would witness when I was growing up is are the indignities that she faced when she was getting help from the welfare office and the caseworkers. And that was one of my first moments of indignation and anger within me to see that this is a hardworking woman that would work 13 hour days to survive and make ends meet for me in a sweatshop factory. And then when she needed the help that she already had paid into the system for, she was being looked down upon and criminalized and like, you know, taken for granted. Like she wasn't somebody of worth. When I knew intimately as an eight-year-old that that was absolutely not the case. So to answer that question, I do not come from a political family um, at all. Like I'm not connected to like anyone in the political establishment. My progression and my journey into political activism has really been because of my lived experiences with, with oppression, with poverty, um, you know, witnessing the things that I witnessed when I was growing up. Um, and, you know, like, I guess like what I have, what, why I've gravitated towards this is because of, of that anger, right? And that sense of indignation that I've always felt when I've seen hardworking people, honorable people in the community, like working hard to make ends meet that are unsung heroes that are really the ones that are holding the community together and subsidizing everybody's way of life as we've seen in the coronavirus, like a lot of people that live in my community are service workers, delivery workers, and they would put their lives on the line to make ends meet, to deliver food to somebody in the Upper East Side. Right. So, you know, my community is 97% like black and brown. You know, again, it's one of the poorest uh, congressional districts in the country, if, if, need that, if not the poorest. So this is where I draw my inspiration. This is where I get my drive from and, and my passion to fight for the underdog, to fight for those unsung heroes and use this platform to, you know, fight for dignity and to highlight their stories and to humanize those stories because they deserve a place in our politics. Yeah. And um, but so I understand your family isn't political, like weren't involved in politics, but were they involved? No, in I mean, my mom, she grew up in a dictatorship. So I would listen to stories, you know, that she would share with me when she was growing up in the regime of Trujillo, right. which was a Dominican dictator. Um, U.S. funded. You know, the 40s. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Right. Um, so I would grow up listening to, to those stories and, you know, her telling me like all the deaths that she saw, the young people when they were protesting, how they were targeted. So these are, you know, the stories that I grew up listening to. And that's why in terms of our platform, we're not only focusing on local issues, domestic issues. We're also focusing on a humanistic foreign policy that centers, uh, you know, our humanity, our dignity and is non-interventionist in its approach and, you know, is you know, uh, something that's carried out to prevent wars from happening, to prevent unnecessary deaths all over the world from happening because of the stories that I grew up listening to that my mom would share with me and other people in the community. So I don't know if that answers your question, but that's kind of like yeah. but they how weren't I got involved. politicized. Right. They, but they, they weren't involved in the, with the Young Lords organizing or? Oh, no, no, they weren't. No, they were not. I learned about the Young Lords um, as an adult, right? Um, when yeah. I started becoming more involved in the community activist justice space here in the Bronx, 
that I sought out that history to educate myself from other elders in the community. Got it. Yeah. So that's a history that I learned later on in life. Um, but I mean, my journey into political activism was really like a slow progression. Um, and at the end of the day, like everything is political. You can't separate the politics from the activism because zoning is political, the air that we breathe is political, the water that we breathe is political. So everything is politics. Politics is negotiating you know, scarcity um, and figuring who's gonna get what. So everything in life is political and everybody needs to get involved in that conversation so that we could you know, make sure that we have a seat at the table. Because if we don't, you know, that's not where we need to be as a society. We need to reclaim our space. And tell us about your opponent. Well, I have many different opponents, you know, I have um, about 14 people that are running in this race. Um, half of them are currently elected officials or have been elected officials in the past. And there is one person in particular who's a city council member who's anti-women's rights, anti-choice, anti-LGBTQIA, anti-anything that you could imagine, who drove Ted Cruz. You remember George, uh, Ted Cruz, right? Of course, yeah. Um, so in 2016, when he was running for president, he drove Ted Cruz in the South Bronx, the poorest congressional district in the country, the bluest congressional district in the country, all over the Bronx in 2016. That was a sensation. So we have this gentleman, and then we have a bunch of corporate Democrats that are claiming the mantle of being progressive, while also doing similar things to the individual that I just discussed. Um, empowering Republicans to stay in power in Albany, for instance, taking huge sums of money from real estate uh, luxury developers to finance their campaigns, pushing rezonings in their respective communities of Manhattan, um, uh, voting for $11 billion to be uh, invested in the creation of four new jails throughout New York City instead of using that money to invest in social services to address the root causes of poverty. And I can go on and on. So that is basically the field that you know I'm up against. And what's special about our race is that you know we're not accepting that kind of money. We're standing strong with the community and the fact that we are raising money in a way that highlights the needs and the values of the community is something that resonates with the neighborhood because they want somebody who's not tied to big money and interests because they feel like you know that person that's not tied to those things is gonna fight for them unapologetically in Congress and in any level because you don't have to respond to anybody and you don't have to mince your words. You can just be real about the issues that are going on and just put them out there. Um, so that's basically what's going on in my race. Um, and I encourage you guys to go to lopezforthepeople.com so you can donate, so you can help us make some calls in the last two weeks that we have left for this election because we have a really good shot at winning. We have amazing momentum. We have like thousands of calls that we make um, every week and increasing volunteers. So we need you all to come through so that we can bring this home because corporate milk toast leadership is not what the South Bronx deserves. No, right. so we will put honor uh, the legacy of people like Serrano and take it to the next level. Who is the who is the one who who drove around uh, Ted Cruz? Uh, Ruben Diaz Senior. Oh, okay, right. Okay, so he's one yeah. of the people. Oh my God, mm -hmm. he's hilarious. What else do I know about him that's so funny? Because he wears a cowboy hat. Yeah, he has interesting um, attire. Yeah, <laughs> but it, but it's interesting. Like he's not, you know, the. I mean, obviously, 
he's a problem, right? Um, yeah. And I was sharing this with somebody earlier today. Um, he's a symptom of a larger problem that exists in the Democratic Party, like Trump, right? Like Trump is a system of a larger issue that we have going on. Um, so I, I, you know, like people need to understand that the corporate Democrats that are labeling themselves as progressive, in a way, have taken a lot of the same positions right. that Ruben Diaz Sr has taken in terms of selling out the community, pushing rezonings, like taking union cop money, for instance, um, and investing more in law enforcement than in the needs of the community. So it's just under a different cloak, right? Yeah. So, and they're trying to drive fear into the voting base saying, oh, well, like we need to like band together to defeat like Ruben Diaz Sr., but they don't really have the moral authority to do any of that when you're taking money from like racists and bigots yourself. So, I mean, it's there's a lot of hypocrisy that's going on and we just need to be like real about it and just call it out um, and lead and you know support grassroots candidates with our minds, our souls and our hearts because that's what democratic primaries are for. Yeah, well that's actually what I was gonna ask you about because um, one of the things we see now with all the brutal repression of the protesters is a lot of people, especially kind of like, um, you know, blue MAGA as they're called, um, they're like, you know, uh, this is exactly the tyranny, Donald, I'm not laughing, but I have an image of these people, like wino moms, they're like, this is exactly what Donald Trump, Cheeto Mussolini tyrant wanted, the, you know, there's martial law, there's abuse, there's beatings, it's like, the Dem I mean, yeah, Trump sucks, but de Blasio is a Democrat. Cuomo is a Democrat. Like all these people who are lying about like police beating people are Democrats. I saw the most, speaking of 1984, the most like Orwellian thing where there was a mayor in Seattle who was trying to like pretend that it was like woke or progressive that that the, the Seattle police didn't have their, their um, body cams on. She's like, well, we are, uh, we have a long culture of not believing in surveillance. It's like, oh, come on. Um, it, was, it made me laugh out loud. But yeah, wh what do you think? And then if you criticize the Dems, you're often accused of helping Trump. But you, as someone who's running as a progressive Democrat, how do you see the challenge of of not just like, of this blind loyalty towards all Dems as if they don't have differences among them or as if just saying you're Dem, saying, not saying racist things or not saying homophobic things, but upholding a racist system, for instance. Like, right, no, absolutely. Yeah. I, I always am under, uh, my thought process is that it should never be party over people. Right. It should always be people over party. And it should always be centering workers because they're the ones that create the wealth in this country. It should be about centering the most marginalized and most oppressed amongst us. It's about looking to the community for guidance and leadership at every step of the way so that we can create policies that basically like highlight their plight because when you focus on policies that you know improve the lot of the most marginalized and oppressed everybody in society benefits so right. that that's really what it's about and it's healthy to criticize um people in your camp i mean again that's what primaries are for that's why you know we have democracy so i feel like with political machines they try to quell that dissent um for the sake of unity but no like we have to have these debates so that we can every day like achieve like who what our values are as democrats and right now i don't think that democrats are living up to their greatest greatness right. i don't think that democrats represent the working class 
in the way that they might have uh, done like 30 years ago. So I think that right now, you know, the task here is to fight for the soul of the Democratic Party and once again, return it to the values of FDR, the values of the New Deal, the values of the working class um, that, you know, really sustain th the party. So I feel like black and brown people, um, specifically black people have been taken for granted by the Democratic Party. So I think the Democratic leadership has to work like three times, four times as hard to earn that support um, because a lot of people feel disenfranchised, disenchanted. That's why people don't vote because the democratic leadership is not doing what it needs to do to make sure that like people are being heard and that their needs are at the forefront. Like even throughout the presidential debate, there was no debate about poverty in America. Right. So that's something that like we need to that's look at. I'm sorry. Sanders would always bring it up, you know, with the with the movie. right, yeah. But besides yeah. him, yeah, right. We need to talk about poverty in America. We need to talk about racism in America. We need to talk about the racist institution of slavery in America and teach that in our public school systems because that history has been whitewashed from the history books. Right. So there's a lot of work that needs to be done, um, and I I just feel like the Democratic Party right now currently is. For me, they're Republican light at this moment. And I think that with all these mass movements that we're seeing, all the protests, this new energy that we're seeing, and I'm hopeful that, you know, things, uh, you know, will change um, because change always happens from the ground up, like Bernie has always said, never from the top down. Right. Great. I'm going to bring in our, our other guest, um, Asad Hader. Let's see. Do we have you in there? Great. Hello. Hi, Asad. Hi. Welcome Hi. back. Great to be here. Yeah. Um, do you have any questions that you'd like to ask, Asad? No, I have more, but no, I thought you'd maybe. I'm eager to, to hear your questions, Katie. All right, all right, fine. I like to I like to do like a role reversal. I get to guess in and I, I'd like to, you know, throw that on them. But yeah, I, I do have more questions. Um, I want to know what you think, and then I think that you'll be able to probably talk about this too, Asad, from a slightly different perspective. But there's been a lot of criticism lately of um, the violence. Uh, there's been a lot of arguments that, you know, why are people responding violently? This will just help the police become more brutal in their repression. Wait, let me just pause that. Pause that very serious question. Because Asad, I have to ask, and then, and then we'll get back to that. What are you drinking, Asad? The drink is called Steve's Rum Barrel. It's one okay. variation of several different types of rum barrels. Okay which have existed throughout history. Okay, great. Just wanted to let people know. And and later on the show, you should give some recipes for people. Okay. Okay. Anyway, back that to- That sounds good. That sounds it is, good, right? It is good, yeah. yeah. Um, <laughs> back to, um, from rum drinks to uh, um, brutal violence. It's the Katie Halper Show. Just kidding. First of all, I had, I had Shahid Buttar on the other day and he said something about there's a difference between property destruction and violence. And a lot of people are using those terms interchangeably. So I just want to know what you had, what you thought, um, Sam Alisa and then Assad about the way people are describing this violence as violence, I should say. Yeah. Well, I think it's, um, a deflective tactic. Um, I think it's about gaslighting. I think that, what we need to be focusing on is why is it that everybody saw that eight minute video of George Floyd being murdered by the state? And why isn't there more indignation around that? I think we need to like 
put the question on its head and you know put the energy and the focus where it needs to be because this is why there's so much unrest right now if that hadn't happened we wouldn't see all of these protests all over the country and i think that you know we need to stop criminalizing these protests because these are our first amendment rights uh, to be able to protest and engage in acts of civil disobedience. Um, so that's where I stand on. I think that we need to focus the attention where it needs to be. And have you been out protesting a lot? Yeah, like I said earlier, I've been to about four protests here in the Bronx um, that have been beautiful, signs of solidarity, um, marching in the streets. And one of the things that struck me is um, there was a cleanup uh, the other day, uh, last Tuesday, and because there was there was some rioting that took place, and you know some of the businesses were uh, impacted. And then the next day, like there was people in the community that came together, like maybe like 200 people just like showed up to you know board back the businesses to be there in solidarity, and it was a beautiful event. Um, and then the amount of police presence that I saw was so intense it was so significant and i was like well this is why we need to defund the police and then i was talking to people that were at that cleanup and i was like well you know i mean were you around here the night before when you know things were happening like what were the cops doing then were they like protecting and serving like what were they doing and a lot of people were saying well you know they would just drive by and like not do anything and you know the next day when there's beautiful acts of solidarity in the community they're there in full force. And to me, that's a waste of funding. Cause it's like, if you're organizing something that's based on love and it's based on unity and it's a positive thing, like why do you need to have so much police presence? Yeah. That's what I've been seeing at the protests. Right. Um, Asai, do you have a, do you want to respond? Cause you've been at a, a lot of uh, a protest, right? I'd say I've been to about two or three demonstrations per day um, because they're constantly happening and they're happening all over the place. And sometimes you just hear one happening. And um, even when I've decided to take the day off, I feel like I have to go out. And um, they're all very different. They all change. There's no, I just want to clarify, Assad's not protest shaming anyone. He's not running for office, so he's not. He doesn't have as much to do. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm just a miscreant, you know. I just like I I, I just go out to protest. So, um, uh, I would say I've observed a lot of different things happening at these protests, and um, there are many ways in which the media representations are misleading, and there are many contradictions in the protests. I think that the point that your previous guest made is very important. Property destruction is not the same as violence. Harming property is not the same as harming people. If people are engaged in a protest and they knock over a trash can to build a barricade to prevent the police from coming and chasing them with clubs, that's not violence. Uh, that's one strategy of trying to defend yourself from police. And uh, I think it's not appropriate to condemn that. I think that that's a decision some people will make. And um, there can be a debate about the appropriate tactics to pursue in the street. Um, but the important thing to note is that police violence 
happens when there is any kind of demonstration that is questioning the existing order, that's questioning the status quo. You cannot blame police violence on the behavior of protesters, even if protesters don't engage in property destruction. Uh, it's entirely possible that they'll be met with police violence. And the only people responsible for police violence are the police. That's the fundamental point that everyone has to remember. Police violence is unacceptable. And when it happens, the people responsible are the police. Now, when property destruction happens, it's also a complicated thing. Property destruction in the Bronx is different from property destruction in Soho. When there's property destruction and looting happening in Soho by people who probably would not even have been allowed into these shops, uh, I think that once again, we are not in a position to pass moral judgment on these activities. We are in the greatest economic crisis since the Great Depression. We have astronomical rates of unemployment. The level of deprivation uh, that people are experiencing right now is extreme. And looting is in many cases a rational response to that situation. So instead of being in a position of trying to pass a moral judgment about looting, we have to understand how things like that are inevitable in a situation of such extreme economic inequality, such extreme deprivation. And when people are pushed into, um, into a level of action by this kind of state repression that goes beyond what happens on an everyday basis, People have been pushed into this position. And it's not our place to pass moral judgment on it. We have to understand the inevitability of it. And we have to say, in the end, I believe we have to say that acts of rebellion against the status quo are ultimately better than complacency. Okay. Whatever you want to take. So... You guys are obviously coming from different perspectives and, and pursuing different routes. What do you, Sameli, says someone who is going to like be within the system to the extent, I mean, I think someone like you is like half in, half out, right? I, that's how I think of a progressive insurgent Democrat, that you're in the political system, but you're also not divorced from the world outside of the political system. So how do you see the challenge of kind of walking that line? In well, other words, I like, like I'm an inside like that. I mean that by virtue of being a politician, you're some, some, someone is somewhat inside the system, mm -hmm. right? Like you're not an insider the way like, you know, Debbie Wasserman, mm -hmm. Rachel, mm -hmm. but by virtue of just holding an office. Someone, oh, oh, okay. Yeah, that's what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> sorry. I wasn't calling you like a, like a corrupt uh, old school Democrat um, at all. I'm actually- Yeah, asking, you know, because this will be a different show, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I'm asking you what the challenge will be. Um, how you'll how you'll walk that line of, of both being you know responsible to your constituents, accountable, and also working in a system that's obviously has major limitations. Mm -hmm. Well, I think that um, this is why we have to rely on the movement space in every situation, because what I see here that I said earlier is that I'm extremely hopeful at all the protests and all the change that the protests are going to ensure. Um, 
you know, so I'm incredibly um, inspired by that. And I think that that has the impact of changing our institutions as well. And people seeing that pressure in all communities, um, you know, can have the possibility of making some real changes to the criminal justice system in this country in terms of defunding the police, um, you know, in terms of moving more towards abolition um, and making sure that whatever savings we get is invested in addressing the root causes of poverty. I mean, you know, one of the issues that we're seeing with, with the looting, um, and this is something I spoke to like, you know, a couple people about in the community. Um, I had overheard them saying, well, you know, I only did this because I am desperate. I mean, I don't have any food on the table. Like, you know, I, this is kind of like, you know, an option for me right now. And I think that if we look at defunding um, these systems and invest in addressing the root causes of poverty, you know, I think that people won't go to those options. Do you know what I mean? Um, and it's really important to once again, highlight these stories and to just be able to talk about them and give them life in Congress, give them light in other, uh, you know, like areas where the city council, I think that people need to see and listen to these stories and hopefully like that will have the power of transforming the narrative and you know making sure that in politics we organize around those values and I think it's going to take like having this continuous outside pressure to shame people into doing the right thing. Um, yeah. It also seems yeah. like something that you talked about, and actually there's a comment that I, it raises an issue that I was gonna ask you about some at least, which is um, Malia Mae Bion, sorry, Beeman says, I think the only reason people can tolerate childhood poverty is because it's obfuscated by compartmentalization. Educator curated mm -hmm. community engagement is in everyday school and could change that. So I was actually gonna ask you about how the connection between defunding the police what, if you could talk about the connection between taking money out of certain things and putting them into other areas, um, and also how your experience as a, as a child who experienced homelessness, how you relate to that question, that issue, and also if there are any experiences you had as a child that you think is important for people who probably don't know a lot about what it's like for, like child homelessness is not a particularly discussed issue. So anything that you think that's important that, that people need to know about what it's like. You talked about the shame um, so I just wanted to know if there's anything you wanted to take the chance to tell people about either from personal experience or from a policy critique. I think that as a child growing up in the homeless shelter system, I definitely did not get any support services from my local school to help me process what was going on. I was let to be on my own, basically like, well, you just have to come to school every day and get good grades, you know, or else, you know, you're not going to pass. And I think that is really important to provide supportive services, especially for children in those situations currently so that we can process what's going on. And there's a lot of hidden trauma when you go through that situation that I ended up learning as an adult. Um, I didn't open up about the fact that I grew up in the shelter system until graduate school. So it was something that you know was shameful for me um, that I did not talk about. Um, so I think that even like you know, having had the space to just talk openly about it to a teacher or a guidance counselor would have done wonders for me and many other children going in this situation. And I don't know that those supportive services are being provided to children. Um, and I think that the public school system should be, you know, a system that provides that kind of support service for, you know, people going through that situation and children. 
um, because there's a lot that goes behind the scenes. Like, you know, like you watch what your your parents go through um, and, you know, it, it, it's traumatic. It's, it's heavy stuff. And I feel like school should be a safe space where you can get to talk about that openly and get a support system outside of your own family to help you deal with it. Um, yeah. And then what was the other question? Um, about the way the relationship between fund defunding the police and mm -hmm. funding other other things like a lot of times people will be like oh well, you can't how can we do that where's the money going to come from money doesn't grow on right. exactly so yeah. you know we always talk about these issues for instance like when there's a war when there's a war that's being concocted somewhere in the world right, right. like all of a sudden from day to night like the money materializes it comes from the trees it comes from out of nowhere right. But then when we're talking about social services, when we're talking about schooling, you know, it's a mystery. Like, where is this money going to come from? And I think right now in New York, what we need to do in other places around the country is like we can use those services to invest in our youth, to invest in recreation centers, to invest in summer jobs. Right now, the summer jobs have been canceled in New York. And we had a little bit of the funding, um, you know, from, you know, that we can get divesting in the militarization of our police. Because I'm sorry, but like law enforcement should not be walking around with AK-47s and like militarized equipment like in our communities. You know what I mean? Um, so if we can use some of those services to invest in schools, invest in summer jobs, invest in our youth. And like I said earlier, you know, schools have been defunded for years now. Like in New York, like, you know, there's a big disparity between public schools in poor areas and public schools in richer areas and charter schools, how like charter schools often take away resources from public schools. So that's a real conversation that we need to have. And what better investment than investing in our youth so that they can have recreation centers where they can play, where they can socialize with each other. I feel like that's one of the most important things that we can do to stop crime. And I think that yeah. we need to continuously like invest in these uh, restorative uh, practices that we invest in our community services and our social capital um, so that we can prevent crime. And so we can prevent things like poverty from taking a hold on our communities and to, yeah. so that we can decriminalize poverty as well. Brad Bloom, he says the NYPD annual budget is six billion. Yeah. This is true, you yeah. know. Um, I mean, yeah, that that statement says it all. Yeah. Um, any other anything else you want to talk about? Um, yeah, I see here that definitely the U.S. military budget should be cut as well um, dramatically. I absolutely agree. I think that we need to also disinvest in the military industrial complex. We need humane foreign policy that's going to be humanistic and is going to prevent unnecessary wars and death from all over the world. One of the things that I'm really proud of is um, my stance on foreign policy as it relates to, uh, you know, Middle Eastern, um, you know, politics, specifically as it relates to Palestine and the importance of making sure that we're fighting for Palestinian human rights and self-determination and calling out the Trump administration for refusing to provide aid to Palestine and, and other countries in a time where they need it the most to combat the coronavirus. Right. That yeah. is wrong, you know, and what we saw happen in Wuhan, China is that that was something that was 
off our shores and it still came to our shores. So it doesn't make sense for us to take these views um, and limit funding um, you know, to different countries in the world. Like we need to lift sanctions um, yeah. in countries like Iran, Venezuela. We need to provide uh, the aid that people in Palestine need to combat this crisis. Uh, so, you know, I'm really proud that in our campaign, we've centered that. And that's also something that's happening in our race are dangerous narratives that are being taken around, uh, you know, Israeli and uh, Palestinian human dignity. Um, so we need to continue to fight against anti-Semitism, white supremacy and bigotry. But we also need to stand up for Palestinian human rights as well. Um, and in my race, there are uh, you know, a lot of people that are running that are not taking those stances. Um, right. In a community that is 90% black and brown, that has uh, Palestinians living here, Yemeni, uh, West Africans, like a strong Muslim community. And you know, if you go to our website, you'll see that it's translated into five different languages. It's in Arabic, it's in Bangla, it's in French, out of respect for the Francophone uh, African community that exists here, it's in Spanish, English, because we wanna make sure that everybody is reflected in our platform in the community and that the community sees themselves like in our campaign, that we're being intentional about centering their diversity, which is our strength. And connected to that is having foreign policy that centers people's human stories and dignity, because that also impacts immigration patterns as well. Right. So we can talk about immigration, but you can't talk about it in a silo. You have to also talk about it in the context of you know, foreign policy and also climate change was also starting to impact immigration patterns. Right. So, you know, we need to take a holistic approach to these things. Yeah. Um, so uh, Brad Bloom says to heck with Biden, we need to nominate some at least facts. So you got your first presidential nomination. Okay, um, hey, Brad. Okay. Yeah. And then Stephen. <laughs> are, are you going to phone back Brad Bloom? Are you yeah. phone banking for us at LopezWithThePeople.com? Because we need you. He's saying, yes, I can feel the energy. He hasn't written it yet, but I can tell it's coming. Okay. Um, and then Stephen Hefner says, NYPD can be ranked as the seventh largest military in the world. Wow, that's scary. And by the way, coming kind of full circle is that the NYPD gets training from Israel, which is very hard for people to talk about, especially yeah. non-Jews, because I know everyone calls people, I get called a self-loathing mm. Jew, which is a lot better than getting called an anti-Semite. Um, but the nice thing, I mean, it's disturbing, but it's a relief at least that, you know, the APAC view does not represent most, um, Jewish Americans. Right. So, I'm honored to have the endorsement of Jewish Voices for Peace. There you go. Um, that is an organization that, that I turn to, um, yeah. to help me talk about these issues. Cause I'm a Latina woman from the South Bronx. I didn't grow up learning about Middle Eastern politics, uh, when I was growing up. So, I, you know, like to defer to people in that area of the world to educate me on how I can be an advocate and an ally. Um, so well, you also see that there are, I mean, uh, yes, and and you just you're like just you discern right because there are obviously people come they're good this good that like progressive this progressive progressive that and so um, lots of times with the Israeli Palestinian question people will be like. Do you live in Israel? Do you know? It's like, well, there are lots of places I don't live. I, I can still decide whether something's humane or inhumane. And the, the point is that there are also, you could, you know, I'm always like, well, do you live in in the occupied territories? Like, you don't know what that's like either. Um, and there are Jews and Israelis who have the position that, that are called, you know, that are critical of, of APAC. So there's that. Um, yeah, so Brad Bloom has agreed to phone bank. Um, and also, um, Brian, Thanks, Frank, Brad. 
would like you to end support, U.S. support, uh, is calling for the end of U.S. support for the civil war in Yemen. Yes, completely yeah. agree. I actually received the endorsement from the Arab Union, um, oh, awesome. Arab Union of uh, Women, um, and they were educating me on what's been going on in Yemen. So that's what I do. Like, I'm not an international policy expert, but I seek out uh, directly impacted people and people in my community to give me that guidance as to what I should be focusing on. Right. So, yeah, that is something that's um, on our radar. Um, and I look forward to getting more guidance from our Yemeni supporters in the district. Great. Um, awesome. Okay. And any, any last question, any political heroes or like, they don't have to be political, any heroes in the world? Ah, that's a hard question, right? Like I feel like all the unsung heroes in the world, um, are heroes like living their life day to day, like struggling to survive, making rent, like putting food on the table, like those people that are not seen right. right. And on TV, those are the people that I feel like are the most courageous. Um, yeah. So yeah. Right. Uh, Tiffany Caban, just, I, I just that's she's one of my heroes. Oh I yeah, no, Tiffany, I mean, of course. Too. Yeah, like Tiffany yeah. Caban, like AOC. Yeah. You know, my my mom, you know, is yeah. someone that that I look to for inspiration. Um, but collectively, like I, the people in my community that I know, like work 12 hour jobs, 13 hour jobs to make ends meet and never get that shine, never get this, right. this platform. Those are the people that I admire the most. Yeah. Great. Well, yeah, definitely best of luck. And, um, you should call in another time, do some, you know, if you're mm -hmm. out and about send in some organizing videos or photos, we can share them. Yeah, absolutely. Where's the sad? Is he coming oh, yeah, back? Aside. Let me, let me, let, should I, should I call him? Rude. I want to hear what he has to say too. Okay. Let me tell him. I had to, I had to quiet him down a little cause he can get a little professorial cause he is mm. a professor. Hold on, I'm calling him now. Oh, there you are. Asad, you've, you've been requested. The presence of yes. your, yes. she wants, well, Sam had wanted to know your thoughts. Cause I told her I kind of wanted, I didn't. On what? Uh, which which one should we ask him to comment on? Um, let's see. We talked about the violence. We could talk. What about that line? But you have. But but aside, you have to be polite. Okay, to be polite. The line right. between inside yeah. and outside. I, he wasn't going to say anything oh, about see. you. Okay. I was just joking. So Look. he wasn't going to say anything too anti-system. Yeah. Okay. Take it away. Look, we need to have. We need to have political action that's outside of the political system. We need to have people on this. I think this is the point that has already been made, that we will not see change within the state unless there is movement outside the state by people who are putting pressure on the political system to make it go beyond its existing limits. And that's what's uh, so important about this moment right now, that we see that people have taken matters into their own hands and they haven't waited for politicians to set the agenda, that people are acting. And when that happens, then we can see change. Then we can see the possibility of politicians taking positions that go beyond what was permitted before. Um, and so, my emphasis is always on, you know, you can't predict these moments. 
this is a, a kind of unprecedented moment that happened that you know you couldn't see it coming um and at the same time you have to have organization that allows there to be some kind of continuity that makes it possible to go past this moment even if this moment wanes because you know this level of intensity it's hard for people to sustain it it's hard for people to be on the street every day and even if that moment recedes it's important to have organizational continuity that's still outside of the state that's still people uh organizing themselves and uh so i I always place the emphasis on that because I think that um, the way that we are trained in the political system in the U.S. is to always uh, delegate our power to representatives, and we need to assert that power ourselves. Wow. But the representatives. I absolutely can. agree with what Tim said. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, and no, I actually agree with what Tim said, and I think that's a common theme of what I've been saying throughout this conversation that I think that it's uh, important to always follow the movement space and everything that we do and to create the right political conditions to have people that are willing to have the humility to listen to the grassroots movement space and to center directly impacted people and our stories um, so that they can have a place in our democracy and our politics. So I agree with you, Hassad. Great. I think we just started like a little cons consultation business. Aside, you can be movement liaison to progressive Democrats. Mm -hmm. There you go. There you go. Praxis. <laughs> Moving it into praxis and practice. And uh, last question, because I think this was for Samelis and not Assad, but I would love for uh -oh. Assad to take part in this also. Is Assad, okay. no, is Hader going to push for free meals for all families with children? I would actually want something like food stamps for all. Oh, yeah, no, that's actually something that's come up in the campaign. Um, you know, one of our workers, actually a field director, suggested food stamps for all. So that's definitely something that, you know, I would love to explore. There you go. All right. This, this is the first joint hater Lopez piece of policy. Um, okay, well, thank you so much, Samalise. And um, yeah, definitely we'll just keep sending, uh, we'll tweet out all your stuff and links and um, come back again. What, how many days until your election? Oh my God, it feels like it's tomorrow. It's gonna to be on June 23rd. Okay. So a little over two weeks. We don't have a lot of time, people. We can yeah. win this race, but you have to commit. You, you can phone commit. bank from any part of the world. We need you, the movement needs you, the South Bronx needs you more than ever before. I need you to text bank, I need you to phone bank so that we can win this race and show all the naysayers what the South Bronx is and we can bring this home. We just need you to commit and sign up for as many phone banking shifts as you can because, you know, we have a real good shot. People shouldn't sleep on us. Yeah. You snooze, you lose. You snooze, you lose. Yeah. Muchas gracias, eh, Katie, y pa'lante. Thank you. Okay. Pa'lante. Thank you Buenas so much. Buenas noches. Good night. Buenas. Bye. Bye. Bye, Hassad. Bye. I like that. I wanted, I just made, I think I just achieved a real victory for you and Samelis. Because now you're on each other's radar. There's the potential okay. for collaboration. Okay. I just, you know, 
I wasn't, I, I get a little nervous. I, I don't know how to, how to mix up, you know. Just relax. Yeah. All right, fine. Thank you. That is a good, that is a good thing for me to listen to in general. In terms of politicians, who do you, which ones do you like? Which ones do you have? What? I don't like politicians. Oh, come on. First of all, you like, I think, I thought you guys got a well, very, got along very well. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I was, yeah, very impressed. Right? So, and she's an aspiring politician. Okay, um, sure. Any, any, uh, anyone else? That's you like, no, I think you like someone else. You like someone else as much as, more than I do. And, and I think you know who I'm talking about. Guys, I'm talking about Bernie Sanders. Bernie Sanders, is, uh, as politicians go, he's all right. Um, what are but, your... What, what? But, what? you know, what? I mean, look, um, he's still a politician, so the things, you know, the the things he's saying now, uh, I can't uh, go along with it. I don't, like, I, I don't think that just capitulating to the Democratic Party and accepting the idea of the lesser evil and accepting the idea that we should just suppress our criticisms and our discontent with Joe Biden, I don't agree with that. Yeah. Did that, when we spoke last, where was he in that? I'm trying to remember. Like, where had he, where he was in that whole thing? He had dropped out? He had conceded, right? I don't, I don't remember exactly, but, you know, look, I mean, I I think when I say I don't like politicians, this is what I'm talking about. I'm talking about the fact that when you're a politician, you enter into that space where you say things like that. Right. And so, you know, Bernie Sanders, he represented a challenge to the political system, but he also represented part of the political system. This was a contradiction. This was a contradiction which for a little while one aspect of the contradiction was dominant. The aspect which was on the side of the people. I got sirens here. Oh, are you okay? It's all good. I'll have to go investigate after this, but um, look. You're like um, a protest addict. Well, it's, it's when it's happening right next to you, yeah, what can you so, do? So, a lot of people stay home, which is not the brave position, but they do, I think, right? Yeah, well, now even curfew has been lifted, so um, it's not as great a risk. Um, it, it, I mean, it was a, a greater risk the previous nights. But look, um, you know, these things, there are contradictions in politics. So look, there was this contradiction in Bernie Sanders between uh, someone who is advocating for political revolution uh, representing the people who had been excluded from the political system all this time, the majority of people who are excluded from the political system. Um, at the same time, you know, representing someone working within the political system. So the, this was a contradiction. And right. you know, for a little while, one aspect of that contradiction was dominant. And now the, the other aspect has become dominant. So that's the problem. Right. Yeah, I kind of had, I had some hope that it would, that I guess, did you, did you have any hope or you were like, obviously this is going to be what will happen because Bernie's a team player? Um, after Nevada and so on, I thought this is an unprecedented moment. Who knows what will happen? And um, then we saw the party elite 
do everything they could to shut it down. Right. You know, and there are lots of reasons why, you know, and some of them are the are problems with the strategy of the campaign. Absolutely. I mean, there were strategic errors. At the same time, there was also clearly a top-down orchestrated attempt to shut it down. We know that happened. And um, so, so yeah, that's, you know, that's not a surprise that that happens. That's how the system works. So this is the problem. This is the, this is the problem we always encounter when we talk about working inside the system. Right. So, okay, tell us what you've seen uh, standing outside the system, what your thoughts are. You seem very excited about the potential of the, of the, of the current moment. What must be done? This moment is very inspiring because I believe that there is a great deal that's spontaneous about this moment. You know, a lot of the times when people look at political action as spontaneous, they kind of have made a mistake because they didn't understand that there were already processes of organization that were happening that they weren't aware of. They were happening behind the scenes. And that's happened to a significant extent. Of course, there are all kinds of community organizations and so on that have played a big role in the mobilization that's happening now. At the same time, a lot of the participation in this current movement is spontaneous. I think that there are a lot of people who have not previously participated in politics who are coming out onto the street um, coming out onto the street to make a political point in, uh, for the first time, you know? And uh, that has so much potential. And that's an amazing thing to happen in the context of a pandemic, in a context in which there are a lot of risks in going out and meeting in large gatherings, and yet we've seen a scale that's unprecedented. Um, and it's, it's really noteworthy that it happens after the Bernie campaign had to fold, you know, after the Bernie campaign had to fold within the political system. Now we're seeing a revolt against that system. Um, and so that's, that's important. And, um, of course we can't predict where it's going to go. We can't predict where it's going to go, but we have to figure out how to participate and sustain this energy. Can you talk about the elements of protest being co-opted by establishment or other orgs, not necessarily on our side? That's, that's something that's happening as we speak. It's happening and you can see it. If you've gone to actions over the course of the past week, you know, you, you can see it developing. And this is a big problem. Um, basically, it means that this spontaneous and autonomous action, the fact that people are taking independent action, can be co-opted, it can be taken up by um, various bureaucratic organizations that want to contain that energy. They want to prevent it from going to a level that challenges the whole system because they want to restrict it to modifications within the existing system. And um, that's a big danger. And, you know, th 
there was, of course, this very, there's this classic article, The Tyranny of Structuralistness, which came out of the feminist movement in the 60s by Joe Freeman. She pointed out that when you don't have organization, that allows these various forms of tyranny to just take over. Informal tyrannies, you know, groups of friends who have influence, one of them's got a megaphone. You know, she says, you know, sometimes everything is gets dominated by whoever. She says, whoever has a husband who's got a printing press, you know, ends up dominating the movement. So in, in this case, somebody shows up with a megaphone. I've seen it happen three times at least. Somebody just has a megaphone and they are able to give directions and control literally which street people decide to walk down. And, and they're, they, they may not even be connected to an organization. They may just have the megaphone. Right. But that, that, that position of leadership gets taken up by, by accident. It happens randomly. So you need to be able to establish organizational structures in order to have a democratic movement, in order to have a movement in which everyone can be a leader. This is important. You know, you have to, you have to, this is a point Ella Baker made, you know, in the civil rights movement. She said that the Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, they had a, sick, yeah, they had a group centered model of leadership rather than being centered on individual leaders. So you need that kind of group leadership and you only get it when you have organization because if you don't have that organization to facilitate the model in which everyone's a leader, individual leaders will come to the top and take control. Mm. So that's, that's the challenge right now, I think, for the movement is to find forms of organization that can be independent of these bureaucratic forms of control. You retweeted, you responded to a tweet of someone who was Sarah David, Sarah Q. David, because this is, I think, somewhat related to what you're talking about. So this is a tweet, New Yorkers, please don't fall for this cop propaganda. This guy with a megaphone shows up to marches with a camera crew to lead people in pro-cop chants. And it's apparently a model who only got that beret yesterday. Just wanted to show this so that people know what's... Listen, my check, my check. My check, my check. Do you see all these cops around us? They are not getting us because of Sergeant Inspector Nickus. That's kind of one example. Yeah, that's, I mean, I was there. So, yeah, I mean, I, I saw this guy. I mean, look, um, one thing that's happening right now, because of the spontaneity of so much of this movement, there are a lot of people who don't have experience being on the street. They don't have experience in demonstrations. Sometimes you see learning processes taking place in which people realize, look, the cops aren't on your side, whatever they may say. Because the, the first thing that the cops will try to do is say, yeah, 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 you know, 
we're, we're just trying to make this work out for you guys. Um, you know, we, we don't want you like, like one day I saw a cop really talk to people and say this, he said, look, just stay on that side of the street. That side of the street is yours. We just don't want you to be in oncoming traffic because it's not safe. So that side of the street is yours. And they'll say that, you know, and that, that is a way of trying to pacify a crowd so that they can avoid conflict. And if they can avoid conflict, if they can keep the crowd non-antagonistic towards police, then uh, they come out of it looking better. They come out of it without the public relations problem of having beaten people up, having shot tear gas, rubber bullets, etc. They don't want... They want to find a way to not do that. So the way that they avoid that is by getting protesters to support them. And if people aren't educated about what the police really do, about uh, the function of the police, about how the police will conduct themselves in the last resort, they may buy into that. They may get misled. And that's one, it goes back to this question of organization that you need also political education. You need political education to show people when you're at a demonstration, don't talk to the police. Don't believe the police because they're going to say things to try to get you to, uh, to keep things within the boundaries that they've set. And they're going to try to demobilize you. So the important thing is to not listen to them and to not collaborate with them. And when you have people who either represent bureaucracies of existing organizations or who've just shown up and got a megaphone and take on this leadership position who want to collaborate with the police, you've got a serious problem. So, um, that's why you need organization to prevent that from happening. You, you need organization and political education so people can understand the police are not on your side and we need to have organization that does not collaborate with the police. So are there any times though when, I mean, presumably there are going to be times, right, when you shouldn't be, like there could be a safety thing, right? I mean, don't people have to be somewhat disc, um discerning and what to listen to, what to not listen to? Or is your point that as much like chaos should be sown as possible? No, look, the, the police, the police have, the police have a range of strategies. The first strategy is try to, is to try to contain the demonstration, to try to keep it within the limits they've set. Now, if they succeed at this, this means that the demonstration is going to remain within their boundaries. It's going to be, look, if all you had is peaceful marches that remained within the constraints set by the police, you wouldn't have this movement you have right now. The movement we have right now is presenting the challenge that it is, the political system. It's, it's, it's getting the attention of the whole world because people went beyond what the police allowed. People went beyond that. People took matters into their own hands. You need that to happen. Police don't want that to happen. 
So police will do whatever they can to make this a non-event. Right. They, they want this to be, they want every march to be something nobody hears about in the news because it, nothing really happened. That's what they want. The police, you know, um, French philosopher Jacques Rancière, also picked up by the American historian Kristen Ross, talks about the police conception of history. Police conception of history is, move along, folks. There's nothing to see here. That's their idea. Nothing to see here. Nothing happened. Okay? So the important thing in politics is to be able to say, something's happening. Something's happening in the sense that people are saying, we're throwing this system into question. And, and that is happening right now. What the police want is to is for people to not understand what is happening. They, they want to bury it. They want to suppress it and hide it. And so you have to resist the police. You have to resist the police. Um, in terms of people's safety, look, you know, there's this whole, you talked about it before, this whole debate about nonviolence. It was property destruction, violence, etc. Look, Nonviolent protest, protest which doesn't involve civil disobedience, sorry, protest which doesn't involve property destruction, it may involve civil disobedience, and so on, it still provokes police violence. Right. Police will still be violent. So the question is, are you able to show that you have a movement which is challenging the police, which is standing up to the police? That's, that's the priority. You have to, because... Look, in the capitalist society, you know, we, we live in democratic societies. And uh, so the main way that democratic capitalist societies operate, look, we live in a democracy in which everyone's vote is supposed to count, one person, one vote. It's supposed to be representative of the will of the people. And yet we have a scale of economic inequality, which is unparalleled in history. We have a minority of the population which controls the whole society. And that's not democracy. And so the way that this system is put together, there are two mechanisms. The first is consent. The first, the, the main way that democracies operate is they try, try to get people to agree. We try to get people to agree with the system. Say, okay, we'll vote. This is the problem. You know, this is the problem with voting. In the end, you know, whoever you vote for, the problem with voting is you're saying, "I agree with this system. I agree with the system that says a minority should rule the society." But even in democratic societies, that consent can disintegrate. Can, it, it, it can be challenged in these moments in which people realize that there is this level of inequality, there's racism and so on. And uh, at that point in the last resort, the state will always send in the police. They will send in the army. They will use violence. In the last resort, even capitalist democracies use violence. So you have to challenge that. And the commenter who's saying that you should read Lenin's State and Revolution is totally right. Read that book, and this is all explained quite clearly. Can you give like a little summary, like the footnotes? I just did. Oh, okay, good. 
when you're talking about violence, are you talking about armed revolution, like as a strategy? I'm not proposing a strategy because right now we're not prepared. If people tried to, the people who are protesting, right? If yeah, without a major like defection, defecting, right? Of of forces, of armed forces, and the police. Clearly, it would be a blood bloodbath. That I'm not even getting into that. What I'm saying is that we're not prepared to say what the right strategy is. Oh, okay. We're not prepared to make that call because right now we still have to understand what the movement is. I mean, we have to have. We need analysis. You know, we we at the same time that we act, the same time that we go out on the street, we also need to think and read and study. We need to understand history, historical examples, and uh, we need to have debates and discussions about what's appropriate going forward. We need to understand what's happening right now. And we're not prepared to advance a strategy. We have to think, you know, before we figure out what's the strategy for the final struggle, you know, we need to figure out how will we make this last past the next two weeks? That's the first problem. How will this last past the next two weeks? Because people are going to get tired. People are going to uh, people are going to be um, struggling to to sustain this. So that's one of the first questions. Uh, another question is that I've also alluded to: How are we going to organize ourselves so that we can have actual democratic decision-making processes, that we can have uh, forms of leadership that are representative of the movement rather than being top-down control. We need to figure that out. These are all questions we need to figure out. So, you know, leaping ahead to saying like, are we gonna have armed revolution? Are we gonna, you know, things like that. Th that's really jumping the gun. So we need to start with uh, these other immediate questions. All right. Well, thank you, Assad. Yeah. Thank you, Katie. Great talking. Great talking. Thanks again so much for listening to the Katie Helper Show. Please rate and review us on iTunes. Also, please support the show at Patreon. That's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. Again, that's patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. My Patreon-only episode is an extended interview with Assad. It's really interesting. We talk about violence, revolution, alcohol, all the usual things. Don't forget to vote for Sam Melis if you live in her district. And to hear the rest of my chat with Assad Hader, please join our Patreon at patreon.com slash the Katie Helper Show. The Katie Helper Show is produced by Josh Bregman. Our theme song is by the band Cordova. And our editor is Ted Reedy.